This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Listen, I have preached a lot of sermons to you over the last, good night, 17 years, thousands of messages on Sunday and then on Tuesday night Bible study and Wednesday night and at youth group and and stuff of that nature. And we've gone through multiple books of the Bible and we've gone through the book of Revelation years and years ago. uh, I think it took us, I don't know, three years to actually get through it. But the fact is that of all those messages that I preach to you, I think this is one of the most important. And it's one I think that you need to really grab hold of in order to, to see our world how it really is. You know, I'm always amazed, especially when I do counseling, uh, young people who are getting ready to make really dumb decisions or husbands that are getting ready to leave their wives or wives that are having problems with their husbands or kids or or just people in general, do a whole lot of counseling, I find that most of the problems in a counseling relationship all boil down to the fact that people are not willing to sacrifice pleasure for today for something better tomorrow. They aren't. That's why people, young people get involved in sexual relationships, because I want it now. I need it now. It feels good now. I know, but you're saving yourself. You're saving yourself for a spouse, that, for a wife or a husband that God has prepared for you that you can be, well, I know, but I don't want to wait. I want it now. Uh, when people struggle with weight or they struggle with um, medical problems and they decide to go more of a natural holistic way. In other words, we're just going to change our diet and all the stuff that you've grown up eating and all the stuff that has caused these problems in your body right now, just say no to those and eat something different. And it's really great until, oh, a birthday party comes. Oh, we're feeling kind of bad. Oh, it's been a tough day. I'm tired. It's nine o'clock at night. There's a football game on. And so we go and we, we sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our goals. We sacrifice everything. And I'm first in line on that because we want it now rather than waiting for something better. Because what's what's better out there is not something I can, excuse the pun, sink my teeth into now, or something I can grab hold of now. It's it's like a pipe dream. It's like, I know it's going to be better out there, but I'm worried about the here and now right now. We've grown up in a society that we don't wait for anything, anything. You know, it's... uh, Put something in the microwave for three minutes. Three minutes. Gosh, you got to wait three whole minutes? In the olden days, my grandmother and my mother, I mean, sometimes people would cook for hours. And we go down there and we just cram the food as fast as we can. We have fast food restaurants and we can drive through the line. And good night, if we're sitting in a line for six minutes, it's an eternity, is it not? We, we see that even online. Tell me how many of you have gone on Facebook or a blog or something of that nature, and you see a blog that looks interesting, and the first thing you do is you scroll down to see how long it is. And if it's this long, I'm not going to read it. 
You know, I'd rather, read, I'd rather look at these little memes or, or stuff of that nature. Or you go online and there's a video. Wow, that looks pretty interesting. Four minutes? I don't have four minutes to invest in that. You know, we're moving on to something else. And, and it's almost like our culture has bred in us ADD. And because of that, we're, we refuse to wait for anything. Anything. And I'm telling you, most of the church today lives their Christian life like that. I know heaven's out there, and I know there's the judgment seat of Christ, and I know there's the issues of crowns, and I know how I live my life right now will have a profound impact on the life that I'm going to have during the millennial reign of Christ, but I don't care. Because if I have a screaming need right now that I need to satisfy in the flesh, rather than waiting for God to open up the windows for us. I want to share some truth with you today that you may not be aware of that is not preached that much in church because we kind of have this this kind of all is one attitude about church that you know and, and about heaven that we're all gonna we're, we're all gonna go to heaven and we're all gonna stand equal and individual at the foot of the cross and that is true fact is there's nothing I can do to earn salvation more than what Tim can do because neither one of us earned it at all it was a gift It was a gift given to me, and it's a gift given to Tim. And it doesn't matter whether I have served the Lord longer than Tim has. Jesus talked about that in the parable of the the man who hired servants in his field. You remember, paid them the exact amount, no matter how long they were there. So when it comes to salvation, we are all equal. And what we do is we bleed that attitude over to think, well, we're going to be equal in everything. Well, well, no, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about crowns. There's certain requirements to get those crowns. Some will, some won't. Well, I don't really care about crowns because after all, we just cast them at the Lord's feet anyway. So, you know, it ain't no big deal. Really? That's like joining a team and not caring if you play. That's like being blessed to have the United States choose you to be on the Olympic swim team but you don't care how you perform or what you do because just being on the team is good enough. We don't honor people like that. We, we look at them and go, well, what's the matter with you? I mean, you work so hard for this, and now you don't care how it ends up, and the same things happen in our own life. This, is, this determination, really, of your place in the kingdom of God will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is why that's the first thing that happens after the rapture. We will give an account of what we have done with not our salvation, because that was a gift, but we will give an account of what we have done with Christ. You and I have been given this incredible blessing to be chosen by him, in him, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. He's he's created in us a new nature. He has told us that no weapon of the enemy out there formed against us will prevail, that we have spiritual armor, that if we have the shield of faith and just trust the God who saved us, it will extinguish every single attack flaming arrow, fiery dart of the enemy. We've been told that our citizenship is not in this world, yet we spend all our life trying to make something of ourselves in this world, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are pilgrims and sojourners. And we've been told all those things, and yet we live like this is it. This is nothing more than this, that I have to get everything for myself now, and I'm not worried about tomorrow, but tomorrow is coming. It's coming for all of us. Very questions that we ask. 
when we talk about the end times, you know, what comes next or what's the next event on God's calendar? We've looked at a couple of these. We've talked about the rapture. Tuesday night, we're going to finish talking about the rapture. And, and that's the next event that could happen at any time. The second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period, those are uh, his coming are preceded by definite signs, such as the revealing of the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation and stuff of that nature and certain wars that take place. And that hasn't happened yet. But the rapture can occur today, right now, at any moment. And right after the rapture, we talked about last week, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it this week, we have the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. Well, he will judge us not according to our salvation. This is not the great white throne judgment that happens at the end of the millennium where the books are open, and let me see if your name is written there. You won't be judged at that because Christ has already provided salvation for us. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you will be judged by your faithfulness. Jesus talked about that parable after parable after parable after parable. We talked about that last week. Guy goes out and gives his servants 10 to minus, 10 bucks, $10,000. Here's this, here's this, here's this. Now do business, act like I would, invest for me, make something for me as your master while I'm gone. And one guy doubles it. One guy gets five, has a 50% return. The other guy does nothing, has this incredible gift that just buries it in the ground. The master comes home and says, gives an account. What have you done with what I have given you? I've given all of you the same equally. Haven't showed favorites in my gift. What have you done? The first one says, look, Lord, you gave me 10 and I've earned and I've given you 10 more. Well done. The second one, Lord, you've given me 10 and I've worked real hard and I've got five more. Well done. What about you? Well, you're a hard man and you, you, you reap what you don't sow. And, and I was afraid. So I took it and just buried it in the ground. I did nothing. I took this precious gift and hid it up under a, a, a bowl on a lampstand so nobody could see. You wicked servant. If you knew that I reap where I don't sow, you could have at least put it in the bank and I could have earned interest. Take what belongs to him and give it to the person who has 10. And this guy is cast out in the outer, outer darkness. Do you remember the parable? And there's, there's multitude of parables like that. Well, we will give an account for what Christ has done for us. The Holy Spirit lives in you. It doesn't get any better than that. You are complete in him. What's going to happen? Judgment seat of Christ determines that. And right after that, you have what's called the marriage ceremony of the Lamb. It's when the the Son of God is wed to his bride. Not to be confused with the marriage supper, or we would call a reception, which is a separate event that actually happens later. And the problem is that we have this attitude that It's just going to be fine. You know, Billy Graham will be the same with me and whatever reward Billy will get, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be satisfied with my little lean to in heaven. You know, I don't really want to do anything with my life to truly glorify the Lord, make him really proud of me because it's going to cost me something here and now. And I'm not willing to go through the pain and suffering and persecution now in order to receive something better because I'm an American. I don't live that way. We have talked about the judgment seat of Christ, and it's the first of seven future judgments that will happen during the end times. It comes from 2 Corinthians 
5.10, and we won't look at that today. We've already looked at it, but pretty much this is church-age believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ for a reward in heaven, or you will suffer loss, a lack of reward. And if we don't think that matters, then we got to be the most carnal, self-serving people imaginable. Oh, I really don't care about a reward. I'm going to have faint humility and go, I don't want any reward, Lord. I, I did it just for you. Well, if you did it just for him, he would reward you. Because the reward you're going to get is something you're going to give back to him because all glory belongs to him anyway. It's like having a child. You know, if you guys will do this, I'd like to reward your good behavior. I don't want to reward dad because I'm so humble. I'm just going to do it out of love. And so I'm not going to do anything that you've asked me to do in order to merit a reward. Well, then that's not out of love. That's out of carnality. That's out of selfishness. It's you doing what you want to do. And we get this twisted view of this. There's a group of people in Scripture revealed to us in the book of Revelation known as the overcomers. And there's another one, and this is a name that I is not found in Scripture. I just call it the overtakers. They are those that ever overcome by the power of the blood and the Holy Spirit who is in them, and promises are given to the overcomers. Those that overcome the flesh, they overcome sin, they overcome their carnality, the culture in which we live. Their light shines bright in heaven, as Daniel 12 talks about. Those are, these, the overcomers are really what we would call, we would call them committed Christians because we kind of live in a carnal Christian world. But really, these are normal Christians. This is what Christ expects of every one of us to overcome by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And then there's those that are overtaken. I don't want to overcome. I don't want to strive. I don't want to stand firm. I'm going to be overtaken by my flesh. I'm going to be overtaken by this, the sins in the world. I'm going to be overtaken by my wants, my desires, my needs, the culture I live in. I'm just going to live my own life my way and ask Jesus to bless it rather than me being a profound influence in the hands of the Lord. And one thing, and we will develop this next week because many of you may have never heard this before, is overcomers inherit the kingdom. You will find in Scripture that it talks about those who enter the kingdom by virtue of the blood of Christ and those who inherit the kingdom as a gift from a father to a child. And there's a distinction made in Scripture between those two. At the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a decision that is made who are overcomers and who are overtakers, who are sold out for the Lord and passionately love Him. I desire to seek nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And those people, like most believers in America today, that, oh, well, it's too hard. It's too much trouble. I'm fine. You know, you can't really tell I'm a Christian because I live like everybody else. And I don't want to tell people I'm a Christian because, you know, they may, they may judge me. But, but the fact is, is, oh, yeah, I believe in Christ. Really? I didn't know. Isn't that sad? Overtakers and overcomers. There's a distinction here. We're just going to touch on it today and dig more into this next week. But this distinction between an overcomer and an overtaker or a real Christian, a committed Christian, or biblically a normal Christian, and what we would call a carnal Christian, which is kind of an oxymoron, but a carnal Christian, the distinction is profound for this life and especially for the life to come. We're going to look at the difference between overcomers and those that have been overtaken. 
Overcomers are those believers who live sanctified, set-apart, holy lives and will inherit the kingdom and receive a reward of inheritance. You know people like that. They make you uncomfortable because they're too much about Jesus. And, you know, you stand with them or you handle things. Let's pray about this or let's tell this person about Jesus or let's do this or here's the verses that I read or how's God's God doing in your life? We hate people like that because they, they make us feel uncomfortable because it's all about Jesus, 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 like it should be with us, but it's not. An overcomer is someone that their works are done by the Spirit of God. It talks about having foundations being built on gold, silver, and precious stones from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Matter of fact, let me, let me just show you this. The source of their strength, of course, is not their own flesh, but the living power of God that lives within them. Their motivation is their love for God, not, not themselves. We, we've, got, we've got a church culture. I, I, I looked at a phrase this week. Hank Hanegraaff actually coined this phrase. He was explaining why he left the traditional evangelical church and joined a, a Greek Orthodox church. And he said he became sickened, sickened over the years of past of the pastor... I can't remember how he pronounces it, but it's the pastor and the entrepreneur that are plugged together. And you've got all these pastors who become entrepreneurs. And so the churches are all about the brand. They're all about the marketing. They're all about themselves and, and all that kind of thing. And they're, they're all over the place. They're some of the largest churches out there. He said, that's not what, what Christ is all about. Our motivation is not about our brand. It's not about our logo. It's not about a show we do on Sunday. It's not about, you know, everybody liking me or me getting the crowd to do some sort of uh, dynamics or, or turn to the person next to you and say something. It's, it's not about that at all. It's about... It's about a motivation of love for God, sacrificing herself for God, giving back to the one who gave to us. An overcomer is someone that constantly judges himself. The scripture says, if you judge yourself, then you will not be judged. Now we look at our sins and, and we see whether we're living in the light or we claim we're living in the light, but really we're dwelling in darkness and we're to repent. And there's no gray area like in 1 John 1, 9. None at all. But, but you recognize that and it drives you to your knees to repent every morning. Lord, if there's anything standing between me and a deeper relationship with you, show me because I want to be found faithful to you. These are overcomers. And we find out in Revelation 19, chapter I, verse I asked you to turn to, that these are clothed in righteous deeds. Watch carefully. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. This is the wedding ceremony and the marriage supper. It says, As I heard, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. John is up in heaven. John is seeing events that are taking place in heaven. And he hears this great multitude of people that are up there around the throne of God. And he says, as a sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings and his great multitude was saying, hallelujah, for the God omnipotent reigns. That's the God omnipotent reigns. It's not the God of love and mercy and grace and peace, but the God of supreme power reigns. The all powerful God reigns. Let us, the great multitude, be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why? 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Father in heaven is preparing to his bride for his Son, Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that the bride is the church. We are known as the bride of Christ. And so up in heaven, this great multitude is saying, Alleluia, hallelujah, for the God, omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign God reigns. Therefore, let us be glad and let's rejoice and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife, you and me, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the denomination, not a building, not a 503C corporate entity, but the called out ones, the ones that are inhabited by his spirit. And his wife has made herself, her actions, ready. Ready. I wonder how you make yourself ready. Do you sit around and party all the time? Do you sit around and, and just destroy yourself or be involved in all sorts of gross immoral sin that your your husband who's coming to you as a chaste virgin bride would be highly offended at that? Do you squander your love that just belongs to him to anybody else that comes because he's been gone a long time preparing a place for us to live in his father's house, but I want somebody to hold me now. It's his wife, the bride of Christ, has made herself, her action, ready. And to her, back to the church now, the bride of Christ, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Yes, the the white robe of a chaste virgin. Why was that granted to her? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Wow. So the bride of Christ is going to be clothed in her righteous acts of the saints, the called out ones, that we are making our wedding garments in the way we live now. I don't know about you, but when I get married, I would rather my wife be dressed in white than some dress that looked like dirty dishwater, wouldn't you? It's a semblance of purity, white, chasteness, and holiness. It says that The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those, number two now, two events here. The first one is the wedding ceremony. The second one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these are the true sayings of God. There's going to be a wedding ceremony, and then there's going to be a wedding supper. And here's the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Will everyone be clothed equally? Well, no, they won't. Because those who have a multitude of righteous acts will be clothed with those righteous acts, and those carnal Christians who don't, won't. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 25 in the story of the ten virgins, and I'll, we're going to close with that today. Note the fact that it's, it's the bride who is making herself ready. It's not somebody doing that for her. It's the fact that she is making herself ready to be presented to her betrothed, to the one she loves. And how does that happen? How does a bride make herself ready? Well, we know how it happens in the flesh. The day before the wedding, the husband 
the one to be married doesn't see the wife and, and she makes her hair beautiful and it's wonderful makeup and she dresses in this very expensive dress that she will only wear once. And she makes herself incredibly beautiful and there's people, their bridesmaid are taking care of her. Oh, you look fantastic. This is great. You're just going to take his breath away. And then the, the husband-to-be is standing down there with the pastor, maybe with his best man, and, and they're waiting. And all of a sudden, the bride comes and everybody stands and he looks at her and he just, he gasps. Oh, I've never seen you so beautiful. It's an honorable thing. My wife, my pure, precious, chaste bride. Now that's, a, that's our weddings. In a Jewish wedding, it was a little bit different. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. In a Jewish wedding, the the center of attention was not the bride. It was assumed that she would be arrayed in chaste apparel. But the center of attention was the groom. What's involved in the process of the church making itself ready? And why? In 2 Corinthians 11.2, why are we referred to as a chaste virgin to be presented to Christ. And the question I ask is, are we? If you are, you will be arrayed one way. But if you're not, because you've squandered your love, not singly devoted to Christ, but you've squandered it on on some sin over here or some habit that you won't give up or some worldview over here or, or just yourself, raising yourself up as an idol in your life, will we all be clothed? Equally. Contrast to the overcomers, you have what I call the overtaken. These are believers who do not live sanctified lives and will not inherit the kingdom and receive the reward of their inheritance, but will only enter the kingdom and suffer loss of reward. You know, this isn't a salvation issue. If you're saved by the blood of Christ, you will enter the kingdom, but some enter and some inherit. Their works are done in the flesh and not by in the spirit and Paul calls these wood, hay, and straw. I want you to see how this folds out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He begins by saying, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of everything that we do. Everything. So therefore, if anyone builds on the foundation of Christ, and Paul lists six elements that you can build with. He says, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw, the difference between wood, hay, and straw and gold and silver and precious stones like a diamond or a ruby is the fact that when they're tried by fire, one is refined, one is consumed, one is of great worth, one is of nothing, wood, hay, and straw. And so you have a choice or you have a believer. And a believer now is building on the foundation of Christ with either precious things that honor him or throwaway things that honor nobody. These are the works I'm doing for you. And, and I'm, I'm, it's wood, hay, and straw. And, and God, I know you're satisfied with the little portion of my life that I'm giving you because that's what I've heard in church, that God just loves me any way that I am and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm going to rock on and take all the gold and silver and precious stones for me and my life and my kingdom and my wants and give you what's left over. But look what happens. Now it's personal. Each one, it's not a collective body of the church now, each one's work will become clear on the day of the judgment of Christ, 
How? For that day will declare it. How? How will that day declare it? Because each one's work will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test, again, it's personal, each one's work of what sort it is. I will test those by fire, and the gold and the silver and the precious stones will still be there. They will endure, they will remain, and everything else will be burned up. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, and the only thing that it would endure here is gold, silver, and precious stone, he will receive, here we go again, a reward of the inheritance of the kingdom. Not everybody gets a reward, only the one whose works endure. If anyone's work is burned, wood, hay, and straw, he will suffer loss. Not of your salvation, but loss of reward. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. It's not a salvation issue, it's a a sanctification issue. And it should change the way we view the life we're living now. Overtaken are those believers who do not live sanctified lives, will not inherit the kingdom and receive the reward of inheritance, but will only enter the kingdom and suffer every loss of reward. Because the source of their strength is their flesh. I'm going to do it. I'm going to manipulate it. I'm going to make sure it all works out the way I want to. I'm going to ask God to bless my efforts. That's that's the American agenda rather than ask God to move. Their motivation is not the love of God, but the love of self. I'll do this only if I get the credit or other people know that I'm doing it. They don't judge themselves. They don't want to place themselves under a microscope and look at their lives and see if they're really connected with Christ. They can't. They're too busy with their own lives, doing the things that they want to do. And they will be found naked, not clothed in righteous deeds on that great and glorious day. The overcomers receive reward and inherit the kingdoms. The overtaken do not and suffer loss. They enter the kingdom but they do not rule and reign with Christ. And again, I will, I will expand on this more next week. The overcomers are Christians who function in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the overtaken are carnal Christians who live for today and for themselves. Most of the church in America today is carnal Christians. We spend all of our time making money. I'm talking for men here. All of our time making money, building our empire, making sure that we don't have to trust Christ for anything. I mean, he said, if I seek him first, his righteousness and his kingdom, he will take care of all my needs, where I live, what I eat, and how much money I'm going to have. But I'm going to spend all my life building this massive nest egg, always saving money for tomorrow, so I don't have to trust Christ for nothing. And the only man in Scripture who did that, who tore down his barns and built bigger barns, Christ called a fool. A fool, because we're trusting ourselves, which is the American dream. It's the way we've all been raised. It's, it's a prudent capitalism. But it's exactly opposite of faith in Christ. God, I've got to handle it myself. Why? Well, because I don't trust you to handle it. Or if you do handle it, I'm not willing to take a step back in my standard of living that you might want me to have. Instead, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm going to work 60 hours a week. My wife's going to work. We're going to put our kids in daycare. We're going to do all that for sheetrock to have a 3,000 square foot house. Why? Well, do you need 3,000 square foot to live in? No, but it just makes me feel good about myself because it makes me feel like I'm comparable to my other neighbors. And so it's So we don't have any time for the things of God because we're too busy working for us. It's wood, hay, and straw. 
just so that you'll know that this didn't come from me, this is a quote from Charles Stanley in a book called Eternal Security. Listen to what Charles Stanley says. Some believers will be entrusted with certain privileges and others will not. Some will reign with Christ, others will not. Some will be rich in the kingdom of God, others will be poor. Some will be given true riches, others will not. Some will be given heavenly treasures of their own, others will not. Some will rule and reign with Christ. They will inherit the kingdom and others will just enter the kingdom and will not. Privilege in the kingdom of God is determined by one's faithfulness in this life. It is true that there will be equality in terms of our inclusion in the kingdom of God, but not our rank and privilege. That's from Charles Stanley years ago. The fact is, is it is a truth that is found all through Scripture that what we do now has eternal consequences. Jesus talked about that. Don't lay it for yourself, gold and riches and clothes and all the kind of stuff here on earth, which we all do because that's how men judge themselves, where which rust and can be stolen and, and moths and things destroy, but lay it for yourself in Treasures in heaven. Yeah, but if I lay up for myself treasures in heaven, I don't get to spend them now. Exactly. Exactly. But this is such a short life. And we're like those people that can't sacrifice our pleasures today for eternity tomorrow. I mean, we're willing to sacrifice like 70 years, 65 years, our working life, maybe from 25 to 65, 40 years now for a thousand year reign with Christ and more. Sounds like a pretty good investment to me, doesn't you? But we never do that. We're never taught that because the more money you make, the more money you tithe, and the more money you tithe, the bigger entrepreneur building we get to build, and we get to promote the church, and it's, it's, like, a, it's like a machine that we feed. I shared this with you last week. I want to go through it really quick. I want to show you promises that are given to the overcomers, not the overtaken, but the overcomers. These are found in the book of Revelation. Seven of them for the seven churches would represent the the church age. The word overcomer means victory or to prevail or triumph, the the drawing of the flesh, the carnality of life. Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is the midst of the paradise of God. I am calling all believers together and I have some that overcome. This group here, and to them, they get a special privilege the others don't. If you had a choice to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God that Jesus offers to us and and some sort of event that he wants to do to, to bless those that serve him faithfully, would you not want to be in that crowd? You can, but it's determined now. Next letter, chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's a no-brainer. 2.17, he who overcomes, I, Jesus, will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. It's like Jesus takes his stone out and looks at us and gives us a special name, a name just for us. You know, I know your name is Debbie. This is who you are to me. Some will, some won't. Do you want to be in the crowd that does? Or the other crowd that sits back and goes, I wonder what her name means. 
wonder what his name means. We determine that now. He who overcomes and keeps my work until the end. Gotcha. That's almost a definition of overcoming. To him I will give power over the nations. Over the nations. Revelation 3. To him who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Yes, I know what those white garments are. Those white garments are my righteous deeds, according to Revelation 19. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Hallelujah. What else will you do? I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Father, dad, God. This is Tom. It's Tom. Overcomer. Tom. Can you imagine? To have an audience with God Almighty and have the Son of God confess your name before the Father and all the angels which are jealous of you because they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them like you do? It can be determined now, as he says with all of these, he who has an ear, this is meant for you, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar and a temple of my God, foundation and strength, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Wow, it's like an ownership thing. You know me as Jesus, but here's my new name, and I'm putting my name on you. I get this imagery of Toy Story. Do you remember the, you know, Buzz and our Woody and on the bottom of Woody's foot was the boy's name, Andy. Remember? Yes, I'm owned by Andy. He's going to put his name on us. Not to all. Not to those who just enter. Not to the overtaken, which most of the church is today. But the overcomers who realize the profound importance of how we live right now. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Come up here, Roberta. Come on. Sit on me in my throne. As I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne. What God has done for the son, the son does for the overcomers. Not everyone, just those who overcome. Revelation 21 And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, shall inherit the kingdom, shall inherit all that I am as a joint heir with Christ. And I will be his God and he will be my son. These are not lofty promises. This is something that is obtainable for you and I if we take it seriously today. So the question, what are we? Are you an overcomer? Well, I have been in the past when I was really serious. I remember when I had this really bad illness and I thought I was going to die and and I swore my allegiance to Christ and I told him that if he would redeem me and heal me or heal my wife or my kids or work some miracle out of my life, that I would just, I would serve him for the rest of my days. Well, did he? Yes, he did. And right after the time for like a week, it was great. It was wonderful. But I let the world overtake me. I let the deceitfulness of wealth, pride of life, 
troubles of this world drown out the seed that had been planted in the ground like the parable of the sower. And I became unfruitful. And I was, but I'm not. And I wish I could go back there again. And what's keeping you? Is Christ? Is he, a, is he a, a, somebody who just doles his favors out on a few people? No, it's, I have the same Holy Spirit living in me now that I did then. So, so what's keeping you? Me. Me. Maybe I don't want it bad enough. Maybe I, me. I've been overcome by this world. I've been overcome by the problems that we have. I've been overcome doing good things to the extent that I don't do the best things. Like Chuck Mistler said one time, good things become bad things if they replace best things. True? It's me. I'm more concerned about making money than I'm concerned about anything else. Leading my wife, taking care of my kids, serving you. I, I just because my life is tied up in money. And that's an idol. That's a lust. That's you have. You have become unfaithful to the one who has saved you. Scripture talks about that all the time. The love of money is the root of all evil. The root of all evil. Have I overcome the power of Satan in my flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit that leads lives in me? Well, sometimes yes. Most of the time, no, because it's something that I want. It's something that I need. It's something that makes me feel good right now. That's our culture. It's how we live. Instant gratification. Or am I overtaken by the sin, apathy, and carnality in my daily life? Which one is it? And how am I going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ? I want you to be, want to be really honest with you that The judgment seat of Christ will come for all of us if the rapture occurs, and it will come for you individually when you die. The reality is that when we we die, we stand before the Lord. Um, And for all of us in here, I have no idea how long your life is going to be. I do know that the Scripture says that He knows the very number of days that we're going to live before we've lived the very first one. My could end today. Yours could end today. But if it doesn't, and life kind of goes on in the future like it has in the past, that uh, you and I may, it may be a while before we step into the judgment seat of Christ. But Jeannie Wynn is facing this right now. Right now. And if you talk to her, I guarantee she would tell you is all the things she fretted about all those years mean nothing. Big house, they sold it. Doesn't mean anything. It was just a temporary place that I lived in. And if you ask Jeannie, if you had your whole life to do over again, what would you do? I guarantee you when you're facing the judgment seat of Christ like she is, that your answer would be serve him more, love him more, talk to him more. Because everything else we do means nothing. We don't take any of it with us. It just passes away. Let me show you how important this is. Right after the judgment seat of Christ, there's something called the marriage ceremony. This is, not the, this is not the marriage supper, but it's the marriage ceremony. It's, uh, it's when Christ weds his bride. It happens in heaven, and it happens to the raptured church. The marriage supper comes after this. It's kind of like a reception, and that will, of course, include the Old Testament saints as well as the church, the friends of the bride, as, uh, or the friends of the groom, as John the Baptist referred to himself. The marriage ceremony is only attended by a few, just like ours today. But the marriage supper, the marriage feast, was attended by many. In a Jewish wedding, 
Not like our weddings today. What we have in our weddings is we invite people to the wedding, and then right after the wedding, we have the reception. Know what I mean? And, and we don't invite everybody. I mean, if, if I worked at, at IBM, and I, or if I worked at Dick's or whatever it was, and there's you know 700 people working in this plant, I don't invite everybody to my wedding. Because I've got to feed all those people when it's all over with if they all show up, and I can't afford to do that. So you send out invitations to people who are special to you, to the ceremony. In a Jewish wedding, what happened is they, after the actual ceremony, the father would throw a feast, and his feast would last seven days, usually, or, or usually seven days, sometimes even longer, and the whole town was invited. Everybody came to the feast, and if you didn't come to the feast, you really offended the father of the groom and the bride. So the whole town was supposed to come to the feast, but the whole town was not invited to the ceremony. It was just a select few. And it may be, and we'll talk about this next week, it may be this, the overcomers that are invited to the ceremony, not the overtaken. They'll be invited to the marriage supper. I want you to get, I want you to get your mind around this, and we're going to close how a Jewish wedding works. Because we're not talking about a Gentile, Americanized wedding. We're talking about a Jewish wedding. The way we do weddings is this. My son goes out and he dates 50 different girls. And at the end of 50 different girls and a bunch of broken hearts, he finally finds one that he wants to marry. And that girl, of course, has had 50 different boyfriends and a bunch of broken hearts. And they come to kind of mutual agreement. And so they decide they want to get married. And so maybe they move in together before they get married. Maybe they don't. They plan this big wedding. I, the father, actually in that situation, it's my son, but the the father of the bride has to pay for this big thing. It's a huge gala event, and it's all about the bride. It's all about how pretty she looks. I mean, the, the, the groom is kind of like comic relief. And I'm, when I'm talking to people who are about to get married and marriage counseling, and the, wife, the bride says, here's what I really want, and the, the, uh, the groom says, no, I was thinking, I was said, shut up. It's not your day. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Just this, whatever she wants is fine. Wedding's for her, honeymoon's for you. You know, and so that's how we're going to kind of do this. And it's not the way it was back then at all. What you had in a Jewish wedding is you had what's called the uh, selection of the bride by the father. The bride would consult with some of the elders of the city. I'm sorry, the father of the groom would, would uh, consult with some of the elders of the city and also with his son. And they would find a suitable woman for his son. Let's say it's Mary over here. And, and so the father then would talk to the father of... Um, the, the, uh, the bride, and, and they would come to an arrangement, and, and he, the father would then select the bride for his son. The son would be in agreement with this, but primarily it was a father thing. It's not a, it's not a son thing. We do some of that in weddings today. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I. Wrong answer. That's the politically correct answer. It's not your mother and I. It's you. Father, it's you. You're the authority. You're the one that does that. It's, it's how it was in a Jewish wedding. I do. I give my daughter to be married to this grubby-handed guy. It's always that way if you have daughters, by the way. <laughs> You'll learn. <laughs> and then you have a betrothal. And what happens? An agreement is made. and The son comes and they enter into a betrothal agreement. 
And this usually lasts a year for a virgin. If the woman's a widow, it usually just lasts a month. And during this time, they've actually entered into a marriage contract. They've, they've actually decided that they were married. They don't consummate the marriage. They're not living together, but they're known in the community as already being married. So much so, if you remember the story of Joseph and Mary, that Joseph and Mary were now betrothed. And then all of a sudden she goes out and gets, and uh, has the, uh, Christ child in her. She comes back during this betrothal period. He thinks that she has, you know, been with somebody else. And so in order to break the betrothal, it's not like an engagement. I don't want to see you anymore. Here's the ring back or I'm keeping the ring. The, uh, the reality is when you break a betrothal, it's a, it's, it's a divorce. We have to actually have papers of divorce to send her away. During this year long period, what the wife is, what the uh, the, the uh, bride is doing, is she's preparing herself for the wedding day, and the groom is going to the father's house, and he's building his own place on on the on his attachment to the father's house, because when the father dies, of course, he will then inherit the entire estate, and he's building a place for her to live, and he's doing that for the entire year, and then at some point in time, and it's usually done by a surprise. At some point in time. All of a sudden, he decides to go pick up his wife, and she always has to be ready. She always she never knows when he's going to come, and there's lights, and there's a bunch of friends coming, and all of a sudden, he shows up. And in a Jewish culture, it usually happened at night, and it usually happened when she wasn't expecting is the big surprise. Boom, the, the uh, groom comes for his bride. She always had to be ready. Jesus used that imagery all the time. Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready, for you do not know the day or hour that your master comes. And she's prepare herself for that. Well, where's she at? Oh, she's in Vegas gambling with a bunch of her friends. She'll be back on Thursday. Don't worry about it. No, it doesn't work that way. And then, of course, he would take his bride and they would travel through the town and all these other people would see it's a wedding ceremony. They would attach themselves to the, to the entourage. They would go back to the father's house where a huge feast is thrown. Everybody's invited to honor the son and the choice of his wife, his bride. Let me show you how this lays out in our life. The selection of the bride. You are the bride. You are the one that Christ, that the God the Father has chosen as a bride to his son. Blessed be the God and Father. God and Father does the choosing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he, the Father, chose us in him, when, before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be a bride for his son. And what kind of bride are we to be? Holy and without blame before him. Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as son by Jesus Christ to himself. And why did he choose us? Because he wanted to. According to the good pleasure of his will. God has already reached out and prepared a bride for his son, which is the church, which is the bride of Christ, which is you and me individually. And they've entered into a betrothal period. And a betrothal, it's, a, it's an agreement that's made between the father of the groom and the father of the bride, and it basically includes three important facts. One, there's a solemn oral commitment was given in the presence of witnesses. So there's no fraud that takes place. I will marry this woman. Two, there's a pledge of money and gifts. The, 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 the 
groom comes and he gives the father a gift and he gives the bride a gift to show his love. And then, of course, the dowry is given from the father of the bride to the bride who eventually, when they get married, becomes the grooms. There's an exchanging of gifts that takes place. Has Christ given you any gifts as a seal and a guarantee of your future inheritance to come? The book of Ephesians says it's the Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift. And then three, there's this written pledge and this contract that that can't be broken. You're holding it in your laps right now in this betrothal period. Right now, we are in the betrothal stage of God's schedule of the marriage of his son. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous. He sees us as pure and holy, that we've been covered with the blood of Christ. Our sins have been atoned for. We're the perfect bride for his son. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit as a gift, as a pledge to secure that. And during this betrothal period, as the, as the Son is preparing for us a place in heaven. John 14, do not be troubled. He talks about the fact that I go to my Father and I prepare a place for you. And if I go to my Father to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may also be. Do you remember? It's what he's doing right now. But what is the bride's job? It's sanctification. It says, while we wait for our groom to return, we're to prepare ourselves. That's what we do in this salvation uh, continuum. Justification, God has done, created us pure and holy and righteous. What we have to do is live that way with sanctification. We are consecrated and set apart for only him, not him in money, not him in sex, not him in pride, not him in anger, not him in me, but we're set aside just for him. And in effect, we are making our own wedding garments by the righteous deeds that we live through his spirit today. And then you have the marriage ceremony. There's a presentation of the bride. The groom shows up and he wants to receive the bride to himself. And what kind of bride will we be? Or more importantly, what kind of bride are you? What kind of bride am I? Oh, I had no idea you were coming. Excuse me. You know, I'm, I don't have, where's my wedding dress? I haven't made it yet. Really? It's been a year. You knew I was coming. Did you not care about this? I know. I just, I, you know, I got a bunch of rags over there. And, and I was going to, I was going to get the material for my wedding dress later. It's over. No time anymore. The presentation is when the father basically looks to his son from a Jewish standpoint and says, son, go get your bride and bring her home. You built your home. You've established a place for her. It's time to, it's time to bring her home. Sons could come at any time for his bride. And they did back then, usually at night. And the bride must always be watching and waiting for the day her husband calls her to himself. Do you wake up every morning thinking today could be the day? And God says, I don't know what it is. I want to prepare myself for you. I want to clothe myself with righteous deeds. I want your spirit to, to manifest himself in my heart. I want to live for you and you alone. Or do we just rock on like God's an afterthought? You are the bride of Christ. Passage that we always talk about in marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved me. How much did you love me? And gave himself for me and for you. Why? 
Why would you do that, Christ? That he, Christ, might sanctify, set me apart, and cleanse you and me, the church, with the washing of the water by the word, that he, Christ, may present us to himself. Oh my goodness, he's given me everything that I need to make myself righteous and holy and pure. No, you know, I'll never be tempted beyond my ability through him to withstand that temptation. So he's given me everything I can to make myself this pure, glorious church that he wants to present to himself. And what does that look like? Not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she, the church, you and I, should be holy and without blemish. But I want you to look at three words here. Husbands, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might. That's not a guarantee. That's a might. Sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, which means he might not. We might not be that glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle at any such things, but that she should be, not has to be, and I'm going to make her, she should be holy without blemish. This is not a guarantee. There's conditions that have to be met. And those conditions are holiness and righteousness and being an overcomer and not an overtaker. And then, of course, you have the marriage supper and the feast. And this happens later on in the end times where everyone is invited. There's this joyous procession going back to the father's house. The party was joined on the journey by young virgins who were waiting to catch sight of the processions that passed by. What we do is the bride climbs up the stairs, turns her back, throws the bouquet over her shoulder, and all the other unmarried virgins reach up and grab it. Oh, this means it's going to be me next. Back then, they would all just gather around the procession. Oh, yes, we're just glorious, excited about your wedding. Someday it'll be my turn. These young women are what's called friends of the bride. We'll talk about that later. Upon the wedding party's return to the father's house, a feast was made ready for family and friends. These are people in addition to those who were blessed enough and intimate enough to actually be invited to this ceremony. Those are overcomers. Much like what we would call a wedding reception, only much more elaborate. And again, in our in our culture, it's the bride who's honored. But back then, it was the son. It was the son who was. Those Jewish feasts lasted seven days and some were longer. So the question is, are we getting ready? Not corporately, because we can't do anything corporately unless we do it individually first. Are you getting ready? I don't know the name of the pastor, but a pastor said this one time. Has it ever occurred to you that at the marriage of the bride of the lamb, each of us will be wearing the wedding garments of our own making? Wow. Can you imagine? I mean, we're doing that to ourselves now. Someday soon, the bridegroom will come and take his bride to the father's house. And the question is, are we living a pure and righteous and chaste life as his bridegroom? And if not, what are you prepared to do about it? And if you say nothing, I don't really care about any of this stuff, you are so short-sighted. Like this world is all there is. Like making money and getting paid on Friday is, is the most important thing in the world. Like taking a vacation or having sex or, or satisfying your little want needs are more important than serving God. How, 
I mean, we live in this short-sighted, schizophrenic kind of life, but it can't be that way. Well, here's why, and I'll close with this. Turn to Matthew 25, and we will delve into this more next week. But I want you to look at what Jesus talks about a wedding ceremony here. This is a procession heading back to the feast. Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. Groom has come, got his bride. They're heading back. It's nighttime. The virgins are all gathered around to see this wonderful wedding that's taking place. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps with no oil with them. Oil, of course, is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit, a, a, a committed life of Christ. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And then all the virgins aroused and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. You should have prepared ahead. Why don't you go see if you can take care of it now at the last minute? And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open up to us. And look what he said here. But he answered and said, As surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, the conclusion. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Five people waiting for the bridegroom. Ten people. Five were overcomers and five were overtaken. Five were let in to reward and five were let out. We determine that now, today, in this life, as long as God gives us breath. I was going to, um, I was going to end our time together by taking the Lord's Supper, but I knew I would take the whole hour just going over this, and I actually cut a lot that we're going to do next week to try to consummate this relationship with Him. But I think we're going to do the Lord's Supper on Tuesday. And what I want you to do is between now and Tuesday to examine your life, to look at the areas of your life that you're not spending for Him, that you're just like this rat on a treadmill, just running as fast as you can, accomplishing nothing and leaving nothing for eternal significance. And ask the Lord to begin jettisoning that stuff from your life so that you can be about Him, that you can establish your riches, not in a monetary system that's probably going to collapse in our lifetime. But you will, you will accumulate your riches in heaven, in heaven, as faithfulness and joyously looking for the day of the bridegroom coming. Ask the Lord to show you some areas that you can need to get rid of or things that you need to do. We make a commitment to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and spend an hour with the Lord. And if we get up at 7, who gets slighted? Us? Our family? Our job? 
The Lord does. Just kick him to the curb every time. I don't have time for you, God. I'll catch you later. And we hardly ever do. And then we wonder why our life is so apathetic. Living in Laodicea, as it were. I want you to really consider this in your life. And we're going to begin Tuesday night. So if you're coming, come right on time. We're going to begin Tuesday night with a time of prayer. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to, those of you that are willing to do this with me, we're going to recommit our lives to Christ and try to focus the best we can on life tomorrow and not the fleeting life of today. And then if there's time left over, we're going to talk more about the rapture. Amen? Let me pray.